when you get involved in microcap stocks, whether they're good or bad, the volatility is huge. And you have to live with that. On this episode of Early Bird, Maurice Skonechny, founder of private membership website Microcap Explosions, as well as the website Classic Value Investors. Maurice joins the podcast today to talk about microcap investing, the benefits of microcap stocks, and how he ended up in this field. If you're an investor looking to stay on top of the latest market trends, then you're listening to the right podcast. This is Early Bird, and I'm your host, Stephen Lerner. Before we get to today's discussion, let me tell you how you can save time and beat the market through Early Bird, a free daily email newsletter featuring commentary about the latest trends in stocks, cryptocurrency, and equity crowdfunding. Early Bird is designed to help individual and non-professional investors stay on top of all of the critical investing trends. The newsletter is 100% free and is sent to your email box each weekday morning. Subscribe to Early Bird for free at www.earlybird.email. Once again, that's earlybird.email. And now, today's discussion. All right, Maurice, welcome to the Early Bird Podcast. Thank you for coming here today. My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, so before we begin, uh, Maurice, please tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Give them uh, your biography, a short 30-second Reader's Digest version of who you are. Okay, so I am what you would call a you know, full-time, full-time investor. You can say professional investor, but I don't really manage money for other people. I'm a full-time investor, meaning that I make most of my money from investing my own money. Mm-hmm. And I do have a public website called ClassicValueInvestors.com, and I also run a membership website called MicrocapExplosions.com. And I have a YouTube channel where I provide some information about investing. The best way to find my YouTube channel is really to go to ClassicValueInvestors.com, and you can just find a link there. Mm-hmm. And I focus 100% on an area of the stock market that's kind of hated or ignored by the financial community, and it is the microcap space. Mm-hmm. So, in a nutshell, what what is a microcap? So, microcap space is an area where there's very little competition, and it's an area where you focus on investing in uh, smaller size companies. I would say anything between market cap of less than 200 million. So it could be 10 million, 50 million. I am involved in some companies that are 500 million, but mostly it's below that level. And, it's and, kind of like below the radar. And these are all publicly traded companies, right? Yeah, that's right. They're publicly traded. And a lot of times they they are publicly traded, but because of their size, they might be trading on secondary exchanges such as OTC markets or TSX Venture or Canadian Stock Exchange or AIM in London or uh, Australia. Yeah, mm-hmm. secondary exchanges. Okay, so, so th- that's what a micro cap is. And so I guess uh, from your perspective, what is really the benefit? Now, before we get into sort of the advantages that you found for micro cap investing, you know, just to tell everybody this is this. Uh, 
podcast is just for entertainment purposes only. Uh, definitely talk to financial advisors when you can. But what what what, uh, what is really the benefit about investing in a micro cap company? Uh, the, the biggest benefit is lack of competition. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of like choosing the game that it's easier to win. So let me give you a a sport analogy uh, because people can relate to this. So. I just read an article today uh, titled Consider Your Competition. And it was about a Canadian guy who wanted to represent Canada in the Olympics. And he was in sports all his life, uh, but he tried to do it in hockey. And he simply wasn't good enough to be an elite player. There was a lot of competition from uh, elite players. So he didn't make it to the Olympics in hockey. Then he tried in figure skating and the same thing it's very competitive lots of people do it uh, so he wasn't good enough to to make the olympic team and then later on in his life he discovered uh, what's called uh, skeleton racing and i didn't even really know what this was until i read the article i googled it so it's kind of like racing downhill in a in a, like an ice cube with your head pointed forward and it's like a racing on ice like going down and so uh, what ended up happening is that this particular event had very little competition and with uh, i mean he still had to work hard to get there but he ended up winning a gold medal in this event so his dream came true he he represented canada got a gold medal but the the lesson from this uh, story is that he was able to do it because he competed in an event that had barely any competition in it Many countries can't even participate in it because you have to be in a you know, particular geography where it's cold. So a lot of competition is eliminated just based on this. And also this event wasn't at the Olympics yet. It was just getting signed up for the Olympics. So, you know, again, very little competition. But now when you look at it from the point of view of sports, um, yeah, a gold medal in one sport is the same as gold medal in another sport. It may seem like it, but really from the point of view of respect from other athletes, it's not the same, okay? Oh. Um, it's it's one thing to be the best soccer player like Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi. It's another thing to be a best soccer player in, uh, not soccer player, best player in some other field, right? Uh, so if you take this uh, same analogy into investing, it's completely different because money is money. And when you look at a space like microcap investing and you look at just in general, what kind of competition you have in investing, well, you have really two, two, two types of people that invest. You have the retail investors and you have professionals, which are like institutions, hedge funds and things like that. So if you look at uh, retail investors, what do they do? Well, they chase the most popular names. They, they chase Tesla, they chain, chase AMC, uh, GameStop, right? The most popular names, that, that's where the focus is. That, that, that's where they are. And if you, so, so they're out. They're, they're not really participating in the microcap space. They probably never, never even heard that this space exists. Hmm. Now, when you look at the professionals, what do professionals do? Well, they are at a game of gathering as many assets under management as possible because they earn their money based on a fee, a percentage or percentage of gains that they make. So if their business is gathering as much assets under management, they they have to invest in places where 
this big pool of money can find its home. So if you have a billion or $10 billion under management, are you going to go and try to invest in $10 million companies? No, you have to go and you have to find those big wells. You have to go after Apple, Microsoft, just just the same same names that everybody else is investing in just because you are limited because of your size. And also uh, there, there might be certain regulation that your hedge fund or your fund can only invest in these particular uh, companies with this size or on these exchanges. So again, those rules or size restrictions eliminates this competition from microcap investing. So because you have literally no competition, you can go in into that space. If you know what you're doing, you can handpick the companies that you like, the companies that are real companies with real customers, real uh, real products, and you can pick them and literally you have no competition and you can make incredible type of returns by focusing on that strategy simply because there's so few people doing it. Mm. It, it's, it seems like an interesting space, as you just pointed out there, according to you, less competition. It, how did you end up in micro cap investing? Did you wake up one morning and go, oh, this seems interesting. How, how did you end up in that space? You know, I started learning about investing uh, the, the way many people learn or discover value investing, which is, you know, they learn who Warren Buffett is. They read everything about, about him, Charlie Munger, and all the other famous books on value investing and famous value investors. And But if you closely listen to what Buffett is saying, and he actually was asked this question and what at one of the Berkshire Hathaway meetings years ago, somebody asked him, what would you do if you were getting out of college with $10,000? And he said, if, if I was in that situation, I would probably go into small companies, into obscure places and literally start from A, meaning that he would look at every company on a particular exchange and look for inefficiencies, look for interesting opportunities because this is the place where the probability of mispricing is the greatest. So that, that's really kind of what led me to. I, I learned by I learned the philosophy by reading everything about Buffett. And then this led me to studying various different businesses, business models. And then, of course, this led me to an area where I have the greatest chance of success. That's great investing advice. When we return, we'll hear from Maurice about the risks of microcap investing and what he looks for in a microcap stock. But first, let me tell you how you can become a more informed investor through Early Bird, a free daily email newsletter. Early Bird has commentary on the latest events and trends in stocks, cryptocurrency, and crowdfunding. With Early Bird's daily weekday email, Investors can quickly stay on top of the trends and beat the market. Subscribe to Early Bird for free at www.earlybird.email. Once again, that's earlybird.email. And now, back to today's discussion. Murray, so we talked a little bit about the benefit of going into microcap investing. As you said, there's less competition and that can be advantageous. But as you also said, uh, it 
at microcap investing is a bit controversial. Some refer to it as penny stocks, um, and those can carry a tremendous amount of risk for investors, right? That's absolutely right. I would say, um, I would say that eighty, maybe even ninety percent of the companies that trade on these secondary exchanges uh, are are not something that I would I would have any interest of investing in because these exchanges have lower listing requirements, so it attracts companies that really shouldn't even be called companies. So you might look at uh, mining stocks or oil and gas stocks or companies that say they're they develop the next uh, cancer pill or this or that they don't have any revenues they just have a bunch of promises and they have great stories so but if you do what buffett is saying start with an a and finish on the z and you go through one company one at a time and a lot of times it takes it, it it's quick to eliminate them eliminate them if if they don't really have any real business you just eliminate them but out of out of those companies there is 10 to 20% of them that are interesting that are real companies with real revenues real products and real services that are solving real problems and and that are growing fast and they are um, cheap based on fundamentals they are cheap based on the revenues that are going to bring in the future focus on those focus on those and focus on the the good businesses and that's that's what i focus on i'm not trying to focus on the the term or generalities of penny stocks or or the these 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 companies are risky or not it, you, you can't say that something is risky it's it's a particular business model that's risky that that's what matters now if you take a look at like for example, we all live by uh, apartment buildings. So let's say let's say there is a hundred unit apartment building down down the street. Uh, an apartment building like this uh, could cost uh, ten million dollars. So you have uh, a lot of people around the country, around the world, that have their entire life savings in real estate, and they might own a 100-unit apartment building or even four-unit apartment building, and that's their entire life savings. Hmm. And now, an apartment building is nothing but a business. It's a, you know, you provide a service, a product to your tenants that can live there. Now, if you ask a financial advisor, they will say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's okay for you to own a, a majority of your net worth in an apartment building, but he, privately. But if you took this apartment building and you put it into a public vehicle so that it's publicly traded on a secondary exchange, that same apartment building that was safe to own now, now becomes toxic and penny stock. How ridiculous is that? Mm. So, so it's really the, by going into those public, uh, becoming a public company as opposed to just staying a private apartment building in this scenario, you're saying it's still a fun, the, fun, the fundamentals of the business are the same. It's just now it's public and now people are going to criticize it more. That's right. Just just because of its size, or just because of where it is trading, or just because uh, how much it is trading per share, it doesn't matter. What matters is number one: is this a real business? Do they have revenues? Do they have clients? Do they do they manage their expenses? How is their management? Focus on that. Don't focus on the exchange that it's trading on. 
Don't focus on how much the stock is trading per share. Focus on the fundamentals. Now, just because something is trading on a secondary exchange doesn't mean it's always going to trade on a secondary exchange. If, if a business is good and it's growing, sometimes, sometimes those companies, not, not all the company go, go to NASDAQ the same way. So in other words, the traditional route for companies to get on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange is to get funded by venture capital privately. Okay, and then when they reach a certain size, then they they go public on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. That's the traditional route. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other ways companies choose to, to, to get that. And they might start on those secondary exchanges. Like, for example, Canadian Stock Exchange, their listing requirements are very low and it costs only maybe like $250,000 per year to be listed as a public company. Some companies start there and they become public right away from the beginning. Uh, and then as they grow, they might uh, graduate to NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange later. But it's it's not the same route for everybody else. Everybody's different. Mm-hmm. So uh, going back to the issue of risk, some micro cap companies, as you know, it could be volatile. So there, there are some of them that might be involved in pump and dump uh, type of schemes. How do you avoid those type of toxic microcap uh, stocks and focus on finding the good ones that won't end up like that? Well, first of all, let me address the, the point on volatility. When you get involved in microcap stocks, whether they're good or bad, the volatility is huge. And you have to live with that. And that's one of one of the reasons why you have less competition there, because professional money cannot stand volatility. Okay, they need smooth returns, uh, smooth increases every month, because that's what their clients want. So if you get involved in microcap stocks, uh, you have to have stomach for volatility. And let me give you an example. One time I bought a stock uh, at 1 p.m. I took a nap, and by the time I woke up from the nap, I was down 30 percent. So that's that's typical of these smaller companies because liquidity at that point is limited. But as the company grows and becomes more and more successful, the liquidity issue gets resolved over time. Now, when it comes to how do you get involved, uh, not in the pump and dump or not in just a story, again, you, you study the business. You So what I do is when I get involved in a business, I, I want to usually get involved in companies that have revenues. I, I don't really like companies that don't have revenues. I want them to have revenues. And so that shows me that they have clients. And now I do what's called a scuttlebutt research. Scuttlebutt research is learning the company by talking to the people that are involved with the company. So I will get on the phone and I will call as many customers I can get, as I can get on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I will ask them, why are you using this company for the product or service? What is so special about them? Uh, what made you choose this company? I want to learn straight from the customers why they are doing this business with this company. And this also shows me if, you know, the books are getting cooked or something. Like, I'm talking to the real customers. So they, they're confirming with me that they're customers. Then I will, of course, talk to the management. I will, you know, I want to know uh, their philosophy behind the business. I want them to tell me. I want them to sell me on the company, too. I want them to educate me on the business. Then I will talk to the suppliers or former employees. Former employees are good because sometimes you will learn all the dirt on the company. Um, and uh, directors, I, I will I will get on the phone and talk to direct 
to the directors. Why did you get involved with this company? What's so special about this company? How do you know the CEO? And then you talk to enough people, um, then you start to build a, a picture. You start to get a better understanding of whether this company truly is real and the true potential behind it. So you eliminate it, you eliminate a lot of the risks uh, that you know people assign to these companies by doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you do a lot of due diligence before you make an investment, almost the type of due diligence that investors make in the private markets. That's that's a little bit of what it sounds like. You get on the phone with the customers, the the, the CEO, uh, board of directors. Like it sounds like a good amount of due diligence that, that you do just before you even invest, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's because I am fully aware of the risks that are involved in these companies. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that what I'm getting involved is the real deal, is the real company. Okay. The, the, and, and also, you know, if they provide a certain product, you know, I might uh, become a, a customer myself to mm-hmm. try out the product. Or, And if it's not feasible, then, of course, I want to talk to the customers to, to get into their shoes and understand why this product is important. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with these smaller companies, or like that are listed on Canadian Stock Exchange, for example. Canadian Stock Exchange is known for the exchange for entrepreneurs. You might have products that are like trailblazers or newer products that are providing a solution to a newer problem. So you want to you wanna know uh, the solution that this, this product is providing is really important. And uh, you want to hear it straight from the customers, you know, Mm-hmm. how how important it is their product to their operations and also you want to learn like how easy is it for the customers to switch from a product like this when they once they sign up because i i like to get involved in companies that uh, offer products or services on a recurring basis uh, and so if there's some switching costs involved then that's absolutely fantastic because then Every January, you don't start from zero. Mm-hmm. You're just adding to the base that you already have. Can I ask, uh, on average, how much time, how much due diligence do you put before you make an investment? It depends on a company because some companies are easier to understand than others. But mm-hmm. I would say, you know, at least two weeks of, you know, heavy research before I get involved. Okay. Yeah, and then and then once you get involved, you don't just buy and forget you, you you constantly have to keep checking on the company keep keep calling the ceos keep calling the management see see how the your thesis is progressing they must get tired of, ha- of getting your calls or are they excited actually because oh here's somebody who's in- interested in our product or our service and investing usually they're excited because they don't get those kinds of calls very often mm. okay and and really if you're thinking about, you know, these these managers or founders, they're creating something that they truly believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when somebody calls them with questions, they are very happy to, to tell them. I mean, so many times you, you learn so much more than, than you just learn by reading what's on the website or mm-hmm. what's in the financial reports because they have certain rules. But then once you get someone on the phone talking, I mean, <laughs> there's no limit sometimes as to what you can learn. 
And so, you know, we all have different portfolios. Everybody is going to have different degrees of risk. Would it be fair to say that the majority of your portfolio is microcaps or am I mistaken? Oh, absolutely. Everything. Interesting. And you do your YouTube channel also on microcaps. And how would people find uh, your YouTube channel if they're interested? So YouTube channel is mostly just educational about investing in general. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't really reveal the names of particular companies on the YouTube channel uh, for two reasons. Um, uh, One is that Microcap Explosions is a private membership website where that's where I reveal them and people pay me money. So it's not fair for me to go out and start talking about these ideas, you know, in a public channel. And also on on Microcap Explosions, I share my entire research. I share the uh, entire uh, interviews and and a lot of times scuttlebutt what I find out, um, I, I wouldn't be providing this kind of uh, information on a YouTube channel. So I don't really want people buying these ideas without understanding why they own them. Mm. Because conviction, conviction, uh, conviction is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding why you own it, because as I said, these the stock prices of these companies can go up and down in a wild fashion. And if you don't have the conviction, it's really hard to hold them, um, you know, uh, and, and sit patiently when you don't know what's going on. Absolutely. That, that, is, that is a very good point. Uh, Maurice, before we wrap up, one final question. Um, and this is the big question of the interview today. If you could meet any fictional character... In any work, doesn't matter whether it, what the work is, who would that fictional character be, and why? I don't think so. I don't think I have any any <laughs> anybody that I would want to meet, <laughs> especially. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't really read fiction or get into this. <laughs> I am a very practical uh, kind of person. Thank you again to Maurice Skonechny for sharing your insights on microcap investing. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's discussion. We'll be back next week for another episode of Early Bird. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.